Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Ibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time To Write, a new publication on Medium. And we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Olivia Campbell is the author of Women in White Coats, How the First Women Doctors Changed the World of Medicine. Olivia started writing as a young girl, mysteries fashioned after her beloved Nancy Drew. As a teen, her passion for ballet saw her trained to become a professional dancer. A broken foot prompted her to pivot to arts journalism. In college, an unplanned pregnancy, complicated birth, and postpartum depression turned her writing interest from the arts to medicine. Now she's an independent journalist, essayist, and author, focusing on the intersections of medicine, women, history, and nature. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in The Atlantic, New York Magazine, The Cut, The Washington Post, The Guardian, Self, Aeon, Scientific American, Smithsonian Magazine, Lit Hub, Good Housekeeping, Catapult, Parents, and Undark, among others. Women in White Coats is her first book. She also holds a master's degree in science writing from Johns Hopkins University and an undergraduate degree in journalism from Virginia Commonwealth University and is a member of the National Association of Science Writers. She currently lives in the Philadelphia suburbs along with her husband, three sons, and cat. Welcome, Olivia. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss women in white coats. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Would you mind telling listeners what your book is about and also what inspired you to write it? So my book is about three women in the Victorian era who, against all odds, decide to become doctors, fight as hard as they can to become the first MDs in the U.S. practicing and in the U.K. and in Scotland. So it's three women across different continents. And they're very unlikely friends, right? They don't get along very well, but because of what they've done and how they they achieved it, because they're first, they, they have to band together, work together. They have to figure out how to work together to establish a women's medical school in London, the first women's medical school in England, the only place women can get a medical degree in England. So they really, they didn't want anyone else, any other women to go through what they went through to get their medical degree, the harassment they suffered, the the, the struggles they went through. So it would have been really easy for them to just, you know, stop after they got their degrees, right? No one would have blamed them at all. It was so much work and so hard for them to get to that point years and years and years. And even one of them, you know, she did all the work for a degree. They didn't actually award her the degree. She had to keep going. But they didn't stop there after the, their degrees. They didn't they didn't rest and just practice medicine. They said, you know what? I'm going to make sure that no one else has to go through what I went through. And they found these schools. They found a school. One of them found a school in New York. And then all three of them together found a school in London. So what inspired me to, to start writing about this women in this era is I read about a riot in Philadelphia that happened in 1869. And it was where women appeared in a medical school class in a clinical lecture is what it was at a hospital. So they had been going along at their women's medical school in Philadelphia. And they said, you know what, we, we need clinical education. We, we got to apply to get into this hospital lecture. We, we need to, to have this part of our education too, not just the men, because the men have been going to these lectures for years and years. So they finally, the people at the hospital say, okay, you can come. And they, they appear and the men knew that they were coming. They had been planning a huge riot. They've been passing papers around saying, you know, watch out for the she doctors. They're, they're coming. They're going to take our jobs. They have no business being here. So they get like 300 people, 300 men to appear at this lecture way more than normal. And they, they start throwing crap at them. They're throwing tobacco spit and they're yelling at them and saying, calling them nasty names and just horrible things. On At the end of it, they, they they're throwing rocks at them. It was mayhem. It was a full-blown riot just because these women wanted to get a medical education. And so I was really intrigued by that. And then I found out that a year later, almost exactly a year later, in Edinburgh, Scotland, there was another riot with with almost the exact same thing happened. Women were going into this mixed gender exam. So they had been taking classes separately. A few classes they'd had alongside men, but mostly they were taking separate classes for the women at the University of Edinburgh. And so, the, the, but the exam was for, for everyone. They had to mix everyone together for the exam. And same deal, they, they were like, had planned ahead to, to bring a mob. So they, the women arrived to the exam and there's a mob, they're waiting for them. They're drunk and throwing rotten vegetables. They're throwing mud at them. They're covering their dresses with mud. So I was like, okay, this is, this is a pattern, right? There's two exactly the same. This is, there's something going on here. So I, I needed to know more. I needed to know everything that these women were going through during this time just to try to get a medical degree. Wow. What a story. Why? So first of all, why do you think this appealed to you so much personally? Like I could read those studies and be like, oh, wow, huh, interesting. And then like flip the page of the newspaper and never think about it again. I mean, not 
to be so glib, but you dedicated like I'm assuming years of your life to researching and writing and, you know, bringing the story to light for the rest of us. Why do you think? When I started digging into these stories, what I found is many of the women in Philadelphia, well, first of all, Philadelphia, I live outside of Philadelphia. So I was, I was pulled in by that. And actually Philadelphia didn't end up being a large part of the book that kind of got cut out as we focused in on the people in London. So, but that's fine. (laughs) So I I was reading about like the reasons why these women in Philadelphia wanted to come to the, the women's medical school there. And I found all these stories of women who had difficult births, had lost a child in childbirth, had lost a relative in childbirth, just these, these really incredible stories. And I felt a great connection with many of these women because I had, the reason I started writing about medicine in the first place was a, a difficult childbirth, getting pregnant unexpectedly, having terrible postpartum depression. So I felt connected to the reasons why they were drawn to medicine. I wasn't drawn to medicine, but I was drawn to writing about health, writing about women's medicine with by those experiences. So that that really drove me to, to push further into, into these stories. Hmm. And what happened with your postpartum depression? What was that like? Can you talk about it? You don't have to. No, I can, I can talk about it. It's okay. So I got pregnant in my last year of college. I like scrambled to finish all my classes. I gave birth two days before graduation. So I managed to finish everything. I did a full load of classes over that summer, summer before my last semester. Where were you in college? So, Not that it matters. <laughs> were you in college in Philadelphia? No, I, I went to a VCU in Richmond. So I was still wasn't your family. My family is in, in Virginia and other parts of Virginia. So, but I did end up marrying the, the father. So <laughs> we're still together 15 years later. So that's good. But <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really having getting pregnant unexpectedly really hit me hard. And I, I felt a lot of resentment around that. And I feel like we don't talk about that enough about like, we always think of, we talk about pregnancy in terms of people planning to get pregnant, people wanting to get pregnant and that there's a level of control there that there isn't always in actuality. So I, I felt like I wanted to keep the pregnancy that I was old enough that, you know, I, I wanted to go through with it, but it still struggled with with the idea of being pregnant and and not being planned. And you were what, 20? I was 25. Yeah. So because I took some time off before I went to college, I traveled and stuff, but yeah. And I switched majors like three times. (laughs) (laughs) So so yeah, I was older. So I was like, okay, I'm old enough. I can do this. But then I I had the baby and I was, you know, I lived far away from any family. None of my friends were having babies. I'm very, very isolated, very alone. My husband works a weird job where he's gone most evenings and he's younger than me. He was like three years younger. So he, you know, was also out of his depth (laughs) there. And I was just a mess. Like I was angry. I was so, I didn't know that postpartum depression could be anger. I just thought that's who I was as a mom. Now that's, I thought that's okay. I I guess this is who I am because that, you know, I'm a mom now and this is who I am, but I was just, I would throw things. I would slam things. I was just, the resentment just kind of took root inside me and became that anger. And I I really tried hard not to take it out on my, my child ever. Right. But you know, those ideas of wanting to run your car off the road and those, you know, those things started to to come to me. And I I just never wanted to leave the house. I was stuck on the couch and I had a very, very clingy baby. He just cried all the time. He would nurse all the time. It was one of those kind of colicky situations where it was, it was too much (laughs) and I didn't really have any support. So, but I, I, so when I finally told my obstetrician about it, she kind of patted me on the head basically. It was like, Oh, you just need a date night with your husband. You're just, you're just, you know, you need some time out. And I was like, Oh my God. 
So that didn't help. You're like, I'm about to murder my husband in cold blood. <laughs> right. This is my last <laughs> attempt to, you know, extricate myself from this. But yes, exactly. Like I, that's not the problem. That's that. That's not it. Like, and I, I, thinking about it now, like I understand why my husband didn't want to be around me either. You know, like I understand no. that he wanted to, to to go out, you know, with his drinking buddies because he was young and he, you know, he wanted to blow off steam after work, and that's totally understandable. But I just it just made everything worse. Right. So I, I finally kind of realized what was going on. Like I didn't really know that I had postpartum depression for many months. And so when I finally realized what it was that I, it wasn't just sitting and crying, you know, it wasn't just being sad, but it could manifest in in other ways. I started to try other, other things, try exercise and try, you know, really pushing myself to get out of the house and talking about it, writing about it, researching about it, you know, these kinds of things to get me out of my head. But it was a very dark time. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> very I'm lonely. so sorry. But- <laughs> it's also so hard to diagnose. I think, not that I'm any sort of expert, but I feel like when you have a baby, like sometimes it just does suck. Do you know what I mean? Like some days really are just really hard and difficult. And it's hard to have a baby crying nonstop and not knowing what to do about it. It's stressful and it raises your blood pressure and you like don't know what to do and you feel frantic and no one can help you. So how do you know you're not like having normal responses to a very, you know, destabilizing stimuli, if you will, as opposed to being in a full-on postpartum depression? I think it's hard for even the person doing it and the people around you to know. Right. I don't think anyone could have told me, like, I don't think my mom could have been like, oh, you have depression. Like, I don't think I would have, when you're in it, you don't see it. Mm -hmm. You can't recognize it a lot of times. And like I said, I just thought because it all happened at the same time, that's just who I was now. Like, this is it. Like, that's, that's who I am. I'm just an angry ball ball of rage, you know? (laughs) Great. (laughs) But yeah, it's like, they talk about like the baby blues or like, you know, am I just having a bad day? Is this just what being a parent is like? It's, it's, you don't know when it's your first kid. And, you know, you feel young and, and isolated at the same time and you, you don't know who to ask because all your friends are out having fun and no one else has kids. So you don't, you know, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's having, I've had three kids now. I took a very long time after the first kid to have another kid because I didn't want to, you know, I, I didn't want to go through that again, but having experienced postpartum with other two other kids now, I can definitely look back and see how different that was and how, you know, that definitely was not normal. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. I'm surprised to hear you had more kids after that. No, I mean, (laughs) although of course those feelings are very normal, you know, they're calm, not to minimize, but you know, there's nothing wrong with those feelings, you know, like that's totally understandable that you would feel like that, particularly being so young, chemical stuff aside. Yeah. I think the biggest reason I put off was that I almost died during the childbirth. That didn't help either. So there was like the first one. Yeah. I waited like four years because I was terrified to like give birth. Wait, so what do you mean you almost died? Sorry. Now we're not even talking about the book, but this is so interesting (laughs) to me. I mean, not to say like, oh, your pain is my morning interest. No, this is why I write about women's health and women in medicine. This is why I I dig up and, uh, you know, examine all these elements. So I actually wrote an essay about this. I, I went back to the hospital many years later and requested my file so I could actually figure out what happened Mm -hmm. during the childbirth because no one was telling me anything while it was happening. I didn't know what was going on. All I knew was that like I was passing out, things were going black. <laughs> and my mom was terrified. My mom is a nurse. So I, you know, when she's terrified, <laughs> it's bad. So 
the childbirth wasn't going fast enough for them. So they gave me the Pitocin, the, the, you know, the speeding up the contractions, making the contractions worse thing. So then they, my contractions hurt so much that I couldn't like walk around as much as I had been. So I'm like in the bed, stuck in the bed. So then it's like even slower labor. So let's see, at some point I get the epidural. And so the Pitocin and the epidural like didn't have a good mix with me. So I'm one of those people where if you give me an epidural, my blood pressure drops. There's like some percentage of the population where they can't really take an epidural without an extreme blood pressure drop. So I start getting really dizzy. My blood pressure is tanking. The baby's blood pressure is tanking. At the same time, the Pitocin is causing a permanent contraction. So my belly is rock hard and not releasing. So (laughs) yeah. So all of a sudden... I went from having like a doctor and a nurse near me to having like a room full of, you know, they, all the people start running in, things are beeping, like the, the constant contraction means the, the baby can't, like the heart rate is, isn't, isn't going, isn't there. Oh. And my blood pressure drop means my heart rate isn't there. So they're, <laughs> so, and they tip me backwards. So like try to get blood to go to my head. So that's the last thing I remember. I remember being tipped backward and I look up and there's like a, sea, a circle of people around me. They're like pushing my mom out of the way. My mom is flipping out. A circle is something like this, perhaps <laughs> just saying uh, the cover of your book. Yes. Just, you know, yes. okay. Anyway, keep going. Just, just like that. So it's one of those, like I pass out a lot, like I'm known to pass out, but this didn't, it felt very different than that. It felt like I was really like, like when you're getting put under for anesthesia, like that's what it felt like. It felt like I was going somewhere else. <laughs> like, so I'm getting, I'm starting to to lose consciousness. I'm going, feeling like I'm falling backwards into, into the nothingness. And eventually they stabilize everything and pull us out of it. But yeah, my baby and I almost died. And so that definitely didn't help the depression situation either. Well, so did you end up having a, <laughs> did you have a C-section? No, they, they actually, I actually had a vaginal childbirth, but the doctor did, he was very concerned that I would need a C-section, that there was a really old nurse who was amazing. She like saved me. She was like, no, this is perfectly normal for a first time baby. There's nothing like, we don't need to start throwing the word C-section around. We're not going to do that. So she kind of saved me from the C-section. Not that it's bad to have a C-section, but I was going to be even more terrified of that. But yeah, so it was like 30 hours of labor or something. And it was a total nightmare. <laughs> wow. Well, you probably also had PTSD, you know, not just postpartum depression. Right. And I, I don't think I, I definitely, we weren't talking about that 15 right. years ago, no. you know, like that wasn't a thing. I didn't even think to to call it a traumatic experience until I started excavating these files of, of what exactly happened. And I was like, you know what, and one of the drugs they gave me, they're not even allowed to use it on pregnant women anymore. It's like forbidden because of all the side effects it caused. What? <laughs> So yeah, so they had to give me like epinephrine to restart my heart. So that was the key for the second birth. So as soon as if, if I, that's what I was terrified about of getting a, needing an epidural with the second birth. It's like, it's going to tank my heart rate and I'm going to die. So what I had to tell the doctor was, okay, if I need to get an epidural during the second birth, you have to have be ready with an epi shot, like right then. And they did. So I, I, I asked for the, the epidural with the second kid. And they saw my heart rate start to fluctuate and they're like, okay, we're going to go. And I didn't even notice that they gave me, like, that's how oh much gosh. I needed that shot. Like, usually you would definitely notice yeah. that, that shot of, of ever never right. But I didn't, it didn't make any difference. Like I just felt totally normal. <laughs> so that meant the second birth was fine and it was a very empowering experience. And it was, you know, I had a great doctor and a different doctor who really, you know, talked me through and it was great, but yeah. <laughs> 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Whoa. Okay, so then how... So... What happened then between all of that and you're writing this book? Like in two minutes or less. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. So I got this actually for my book. I had an agent come to me. So I wrote this essay about climate change and the fairy tale forest. So I read a, an article about climate change and how it's going to change the black forest in Germany. And I connected that to the Brothers Grimm fairy tales and wrote this long essay for a literary hub about what culture means in the context of a changing climate. Like what if black forest was different, how would those stories be different? Mm-hmm. Trying try to connect those two threads. And I had multiple agents come to me after that and go, hey, you should write a book. And I was like, oh, okay. I hadn't even thought about that. So it wasn't my idea. But you had decided to become like a writer or at least a freelance writer at that point, journalist. Yes. So yeah, in college, I I was a ballet dancer for many, many years. (laughs) Your story, all these twists and turns on this story. Okay. Keep going. So yes, I spent most, most of my life as a ballet dancer. I went to London. I was trained in London. (laughs) I came back to the U.S. and continued my degree, and then I broke my foot during a move, and I decided that I needed a different career that wasn't so dependent on my body. So, of course, you know, journalism is a great, great idea. (laughs) It's totally stable. Uh, (laughs) So I decided to go into writing about arts journalism. So I wrote about like the the plays and the, the dance performances and movies and stuff. And so at the college paper, I was the cultural editor, and that was great fun. So it was then when I got pregnant that I started writing about health, women's health, medicine, that kind of thing. So that's that's what brought me to being a writer. And so because I had a baby as soon as I had a degree, I just started freelancing right away. So I've kind of always been a freelance writer. So it's been 10 years of freelance writing before I got you know interest from an agent before I dared to think about writing a book. So 15 years, three kids later. <laughs> The first thing I did with my my book money was daycare for my youngest. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was my agent just said, "Hey, what what do you want to write about?" So I started poking around and for ideas, and 
she said, oh, that sounds good. Now, can you dedicate, you know, can you not get bored of that idea for the next two or three years? And I said, okay, yeah, sure. I can do this. So. Wow. Wow. Okay. So now it all <laughs> makes sense. I get it. Okay. So then you sold this book idea and you started researching and then what was like your whole process like in writing this book and how did you manage it with all the kids and like all the rest of it? <laughs> so yeah, first thing I did with the book money sealed up that, that daycare. I got three full days of daycare a week for my, God, he was two, I think at the time he just turned five. So yes, three, three years for research and writing of the book. So up until then freelancing with kids running around, it was always like a fight, right? It's always like trying to find time and it's always taking up those like a family time to do your writing in the evenings or the weekends, you know, but now finally I got the book deal. I didn't need to be freelancing at the same time. So I, I had the, the time and the money to dedicate to just this book. So, you know, it could have taken me longer, but it didn't. So I just bought all the books I could find written by these women, written by relatives of these women. I kind of approached it like a journalist writing a profile is, is what I, I think of it as like, you know, you're going to interview the person, you're going to interview their enemies, you're going to interview their relatives. And so anything I could find about these people as close to them as I could, and then anything written, you know, further out as a biographer, like those kind of things. And then once I had everything I could from the digital archives online, from all the books written, anything that's that I could get my hands on, uh, used books, old books, I pull, I went to the archives, actual archives. So Going into the archives in London and Edinburgh and in New York was kind of like the last thing I did almost because I wanted to know exactly what questions I hadn't been able to answer yet. So there was lots of answers in the books and in the things that they'd written, the essays, the medical publications that, that these people had made. But then I had found like references to a sentence or so to in a letter in, in a book, in a biography and I was like, okay, I need to know the full story in that. So I would like mark down what letter that was. And I needed to go and look at that actual letter. And I found in London, I found a ton of things about the college itself. And like when they offered what courses about the hospital that they ran there, about like what kind of ailments people had that came into the hospital. So those like records of, of annual people coming in. So that, those were fascinating to me, to, those details to be able to include, like things that people would donate to the hospital. That was what I found hilarious, like people donating like large amounts of jams or something or like books for patients to read. I thought that was really cool. So that, I think my favorite part was going into the archives and actually seeing these letters handwritten by these women touching, you know, something that they had touched. It was really electrifying. It really connected me with them and their stories. And that's, I had a little picture of the three of them posted on my wall the whole time I wrote the book. And I just wanted to tell their stories, you know, get, do them justice. I didn't, my main thing about most biographies and just people in, in history in general that are talked about, they're, kind of want to make them this like godlike, you know, they're perfect. They they never did anything wrong. But I really wanted to make these three-dimensional characters. You know, they these are not people aren't perfect. No one is perfect. And I point out a lot of the men in the book, a lot of, a lot of these historical men that we we know their names, they were big anti-women doctors. So that, you know, I'm debunking their their status. But I also didn't want to make the women seem like they're perfect either. The, the further I went along the harder that was, though. Like, the more I got to know these women, the more I was like, oh, I, well, I don't want to say that bad thing about them. So I really, I understand those impulses, where that comes from, of wanting to really, like, make them sound good, right? Because I, I cared about them. But that doesn't do them justice. It doesn't do the reader justice either to kind of pretend that they were something that they weren't. So I, I really love 
to kind of paint those full pictures of especially of Sophia. She was so complicated and she's just such a such a character, really. Like she's she's angry and but she's really loving. She's like eloquent and witty, but she's also like just kind of a mess sometimes and like she's fat and she's brash and she says whatever she wants and she is a lesbian and she just I just love her to bits because she did not take anything from anyone those men were not going to tell her what to do or what to think she wasn't going to take it whereas some of the other women they were like oh I don't know we should we should not step on their toes we, we don't want to like make them angry we need their support to, to do this and she was like whatever we're gonna we're gonna do this we're gonna plow through and do this so that's that's what I love about Sophia <laughs> Wow. Well, you know, you started out by saying these women could have just as easily had left good enough alone, right? Well, what's that expression? Leaving well enough alone. Like they didn't have to start these medical school. They didn't have to be pioneers. They didn't have to do this. But I would say likewise with you, like you didn't have to pull up their stories and repackage them and turn them into three-dimensional characters who now we all can get to know and thank and be appreciative of. And it's pretty awesome. So I think this whole thing, and I'm so sorry for everything you went through with your own body and health and all of it, but way to like take that pain and make it into something amazing. So I have so much respect for you. I think that's awesome. And the book is fantastic too. I mean, it's like, it reads like a novel, really. I mean, you know, the the details that you put in and the thoughts and feelings and how it all happens. It's like riveting to read and knowing the backstory now, I think just like infuses the whole thing with so much more meaning for me as a reader. So amazing. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. So are you going to work on another book or what do, what do you think? Is, is Are you one and done or what's up next? No, I would love to to do it all again. I'm already working on my next proposal. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm planning hopefully, hopefully the next one will come soon. Yeah, I, I love everything about writing this and I, to get paid to do what I love to, to dig into people and their lives and to tell that story is it, incredible. It's <laughs> It's great. Yeah. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? Agents do read what's out there. So keep having interesting ideas. That's what all the agents told me when they approached me was they approached me because of my very original essay idea. That was something like that's very, that struck them as unexpected, a way to, to thinking about things. So yeah, keep, keep publishing. If you can, don't get discouraged by no's. <laughs> there's so many things to learn as a first-time author and one of those is you can still get rejected many times like being an author doesn't mean that everyone's going to suddenly publish you so it's not it's not to do with with your skill or your talent it's to do with whether your idea is a fit and sometimes saying no to your idea is definitely the right thing and I'm very happy when I look back on the times that people have said no to me like yeah no that that wasn't a good story (laughs) knowing the difference between what when you should keep going and when that actually is a not a good story. <laughs> but yeah, just just keep keep pushing, keep keep publishing. The the big takeaway I, I hope people have from my book is that sexism was never okay. Like as long as there have been people being sexist, there have been people saying, no, this is not how it's gonna be. This is not how it should be. Cause we love to talk about history. Like it's that's just how it was. People were racist, people were sexist. But you know what? As long as people have been like that there have been people that are saying, no, this is not okay. It's never been okay. Love it. 
Wow. Olivia, thank you so much. Thanks for spending the time with me this morning and letting me pry into your <laughs> your medical records and your personal <laughs> life. <laughs> so thanks for that. <laughs> I hope you have a great day. And thank you again for talking about women in white coats. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Okay. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.